Episode 99, Brian Hurley, former kicker in college and professional football, author of the book Lean Six Sigma for Good. So when I look back at at my playing days over the years, I think what stands out to me was my mistake around how I practiced. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and more, including some highlight videos of Brian kicking, go to markgraben.com slash mistake99. Thanks for listening, and now on with the show and the start of the college football season. Our guest today is Brian Hurley. We share, in some ways, professional background, and in some ways, uh, we don't, but we'll explore that today. Um, he has a, a company called Business Performance Improvement. He is a Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt uh, he's the host of two podcasts, one called Lean Six Sigma Bursts, and there's another called Lean Six Sigma for Good, and he's doing a book series of that same title, the first edition, um, the first, ver- uh, no, what's the, I made a mistake there. What's the word, Brian, before I welcome uh, you formally? Uh, volume. And- volume. The first volume uh, is available, and he's working on more, Lean Six Sigma for Good. So we'll talk about that later. But the thing we're going to delve into first, I I think is interesting, is that Brian uh, was a a place kicker in what we would just call football for a global audience. We'll call it American football. Uh, He was at the University of Iowa. He kicked in some preseason games for the New York Giants, and he played a number of seasons in different arena football leagues. So with that, Brian, uh, let me say welcome. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Great. Thanks, Mark. We'll jump right in. It's the opening kickoff, if you will. Brian, looking back at everything you've done, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Yeah, this is something I don't talk too much about is my uh, college days and playing football at the University of Iowa. Um, So when I look back at at my playing days over the years, I think what stands out to me was my mistake around how I practiced. And um, as you mentioned, I was a place kicker and I also did some punting. But uh, it's really where the place kicking that I had a lot of ups and downs. And I look back at the way I practiced in my, my kata, if you want to call it that, from the lean terminology, was flawed. And, and I think that led to a lot of that inconsistency. And, and kata, sorry to interrupt, but kata is a word that, that could mean like routine. Routine, basically. Like, like practice routine that you'd go through every day. Um, and with sports, that's very common. Most people have a practice routine they follow. And I thought I had a good one. You know, there was some logic behind it, but um, I think that was part of the issue that I struggled with through my career. Um, so what I ended up doing was thinking that, you know, as I was developing and, and working out and trying to improve that the farther I could kick the football, the better. And so I practiced a lot of long field goals. So I'd go back to as far back as I could physically kick it. And I, I figured if I made those kicks, then everything shorter than that would be a piece of cake, right? It's closer and it's easier, right? Um, and so I spent a lot of time kicking 50, 
55 yard field goals at my practice. And I would spend majority of time, you know, I do a little warm up, but go straight to the long kicks. Um, what happened? And, uh, and so that, that thinking that this would lead to success in the short term and the short, shorter kicks did not pan out. I struggled. Um, so I ended up my freshman year of, of college, I redshirted, which means you take a, a year off and you get kind of acclimated to academics and then you still have four years of eligibility. So and you can still practice in a redshirt year. You just don't play in the games. Exactly. With the rules Everything the time. Yeah. yeah. You just don't play in a game. And most freshmen do that in football because it's such a physical sport and other positions besides place kicker. It, it's a very physical sport and you need the extra year of tra- weight training and adding on weight and all that. So most of the, I think one or two players on my class actually played that year, most redshirt. So that's pretty typical. Um, so I worked out and I got better and, um, end up playing. Um, but then would, um, in my second year, I end up losing my job and that was due to inconsistencies. So I could make a really good kick and then the next one shank it or miss it badly. Um, from, from the shorter ranges of what, like 35, range, primarily. yeah, 35, I guess is sh- sh- it's short to mid range for mm-hmm. college kickers. Right. Yeah. So most of the kicks take place inside 40 yards, but that's not where I was spending my time practicing. Uh, so, um, it didn't translate. That's what happened. It, I was, you know, focused on so much on the long kicks that I, I didn't really study and think about when I missed them. I just thought, oh, I'll just miss hit it. I'll just try again. And I never really studied the, the perfecting that technique um, to be really, really consistent about that. So I think that was one, you know, problem I have. And so I ended up losing my job twice um, while I was at Iowa and got relegated to doing only long field goals for my last two years. Um, so that was a really difficult experience to go through. Um, but I still think it didn't sink in right away that it was my practice routine that was causing that. So um, looking back, if I had to do it over again, I would have changed up my, my approach on how I practiced um, and gotten more consistent, which is the most important thing for a place kicker is to be consistent on the makeable kicks. Um, not, you know, and it was, I did make some long kicks. It did work out at times, but uh, not to the point where you're going to be the starting kicker on all the kicks. I mean, so you had your routines that you developed. I'm, I'm curious, you know, because there are other, it's not like an NFL team where there's only one kicker on the roster at a time. College teams have, including walk-ons, three, maybe four kickers. Mm-hmm. And That's- you've got a special teams coach who may or may not be a kicking expert. Like, so I know uh, we, and we might, might get into a little bit of, um, Big Ten talk, you know, Northwestern, my alma mater, the special teams coach is the head coach who played linebacker. I don't know if he's ever kicked a football in his life. So I guess my question is, like, how much is it a matter of figuring it out yourself, learning from what the other kickers are doing? Like, how much do you compare notes and how much coaching were, were you getting? It's nice that you can do that, but it also is you can get into some bad habits, too, that you don't know. So uh, I had some coaches that had a little bit of knowledge um, and some had zero, very little knowledge, but um, that's very, very typical that most of the coaches don't have a lot of experience. They're not, um, it's not as prevalent as it is now that you actually have a kicking coach that you're 
the team provides. And I imagine there's an interesting dynamic where your teammates, but you're competing for a job. As you mentioned, you, you kind of you win the job, lose the job. You're, you're practicing uh, the same set of uprights. I'm just trying to picture, think through the dynamic of you want to watch each other, but how much, how much cooperation and, and help is there? Yeah. Um, my best friends are actually the other people I was competing with, my ice kicker and punter friends. So um, interesting that we hung out so much that we became really close and formed a good bond, even though we were competing with each other for playing time. And I, at first, I didn't know how that was going to go because I hadn't in high school, there wasn't a lot of competition for the job. Um, but it was interesting. It was very much individualized. It's we all know we were competing against ourselves, that if you know, it wasn't the other person's fault, it was our own fault if we didn't do well enough. And we all had opportunities. It wasn't like someone was perfect and you could never beat them out. You had opportunities um, and you just didn't execute on that. So. It, it worked out very strange that that was uh, closest bonds were the people we competing against. Now, I wouldn't say that we shared tips or gave advice to each other, um, but definitely um, the closest people on my team that I still stay in, in contact with, people that, who I lost my job to or I beat them out for their job. Um, and you would think that they would hold grudges or we would there would be animosity there, but it's not the case. And I think that goes to the, you know, how the uh, personality types of everybody, but also the team environment that as long as we're winning and we're doing well, you know, uh, I, no one wants to be the one that's to blame for mistakes or costing the game. So if the team's winning and if the, there's someone better that can do the job than you and it helps the team win, then that's kind of the attitude that most people take. So. That's pretty healthy. Because and for comparison, I'm going to come back to the Big Ten thing because the the funny small world almost connection. Because um, Brian and I have known each other for a couple of years in professional circles, and then I I learned um, that you had kicked at Iowa, and it was at the same years that I was a student. I was playing drums in the marching band okay. at Northwestern. So for those four years that our teams played each other every year. Uh, you know, we were in the same approximate location. In fact, I was actually on the field once at Kinnick Stadium, but yep. I was there as a visiting marching band member when you were on the roster. But um, when you were playing for Iowa, Northwestern was was terrible those years. We were winning maybe three games a year. Iowa, you had an expectation of going to a bowl game, maybe going to the Rose Bowl. So maybe that maybe helped with the competitive dynamic of, well, there's, there's, there's some benefit, even if you're not the starting kicker to let's say this bowl trip or the excitement of being on a winning team, it would be a mistake to undercut each other, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, uh, just like in business, I think there's a lot of commonality there with the, the leaders and the coaches and how they set the tone for that. And so I had a coach that I played for was Hayden Fry and he's very well known, legendary coach. And that's how he operated was, um, and he had a lot of success doing it that way. So that carried through to the players. And so, um, and I think what happened at Northwestern was actually during my time when Northwestern pulled off what I think was maybe the most unbelievable turnaround of any sports team. Um, because it was, I remember growing up, it was a guaranteed win when I played Northwestern and scores of 50 to nothing, you know, were very common. And to see 
them evolve over those couple of years. So the first two years we won and the second two years we lost and it ended a 20 some game losing streak Northwestern. And it was the culture that Gary Barnett set up there was amazing. And I think it started that we will win and we'll have an attitude that we are not going to lose. And on the other team, when you see that happen game after game, they keep pulling out victories, despite what looks like a loss they're going to have, they gain confidence around that. And the opponent starts to think, oh, here it goes again. They're going to pull out another one. And the psychology around that is so critical in sports that um, it's, it's, it's the physical part is important, but the mental part is almost more important because you can get in your own head and you can start to think differently and it changes how you behave and how you perform. And it's such an important part, but it's, it was, I, I was on the back on the bad side of that whole transformation. Uh, and I saw it firsthand, but uh, looking back, it was very impressive what happened there. Yeah. Cause I graduated in June of 95 and it was the fall of 95 when Northwestern had their amazing Rose Bowl run. And I, I don't have any close connections to him. I, I tried reaching out once to coach Barnett to try to uh, see if he would be a guest on this podcast, but I, there, there's a story thinking back to coach Fry and we talk about mistakes. I, this may have been, I don't know, a mistake on his part because it was one of those um, I'm sure, you know, blowout victories yep. and reportedly I wasn't there. So like reportedly, allegedly, Coach Fry came to shake hands with Coach Barnett uh, on the field after the game and said something to the effect of, I hope our boys didn't hurt your boys too bad or something like that. Well, that really got under Gary Barnett's skin. And I think Pat Fitzgerald, our current coach, who was a player on those teams, like Iowa went from, from our perspective to being like, yeah, just one of the other schools that kicks our butts most of the time to being like this red letter hated rival. And, mm-hmm. and, and to this day, like I think Northwestern gets up more for that Iowa game, maybe because of some of that history. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's a show since that time. Those, that rivalry has been very even over the years from 95 through current day, those games are competitive and close most part. And yeah, I think Pat Fitzgerald being on that team and being part of that transformation and carrying that over into the, the attitude and culture in Northwestern has been part of that um, dramatic change. And yeah, so it, it definitely starts at the top and how people think and behave. And it lines up nicely with all the work we do with, um, you know, continuous improvement and every day getting a little bit better than the day before. And, you know, um, yeah, so the, the tie in with business and sports is very close in my mind. Yeah. So I, I want to come back to, you know, some of your thoughts on the lessons learned. I mean, I, I as an observer, watching the Northwestern football program, you can see that as a turnaround situation. And like my first job right out of college at General Motors was a losing team. Mm. It was the Northwestern Wildcats of the time of mm. building car engines. And and we got a new plant manager, which is kind of the equivalent of a head coach. And, and I saw it. So I've seen reinforced in different settings a head coach who's had success somewhere else because yep. Gary Barnett had been an assistant coach on a national championship team at Colorado. He knew what a winning culture was. Yep. And when you bring in that type of leader, whether it's into a car plant or into a football locker room, it takes time because that culture change is, is uh, 
not easy to say the least, but it's, it's doable with the right kind of leadership. So I find that kind of a optimistic, hopeful thing for a lot of organizations, but I wanted to ask you, Brian. Oh, I want to add on that because uh, when I grew up, I grew up in Iowa city where the university of Iowa was located and I was born in 74. So in 79, Aiden Fry was brought in to be the coach at Iowa, 20 straight years of losing program, uh, losing season at Iowa. And he had a different attitude and he had turned around a few other programs and he did the exact same thing in three years, they were in the Rose bowl. And so as far as I, you know, was old enough to remember football, he was the coach there. And so he did the same thing 20 years earlier with his transformation at Iowa too. So, and it's, it started from the top and how he ran his program and how he delegated to his assistants and he set the vision and just kept the attitude high with the players. Um, and then he worked with his man. He worked with his assistant coaches. That's where he spent most of his time developing the assistant coaches. So, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting story too, to kind of grow up that way and then end up playing um, and seeing just the, the turnaround that happened there too. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I thought of, Hayden Fry in Iowa uh, with the end results. I didn't know the turnaround story. I was born in 1973. I was a kid. You know, the, the, the big program where I grew up, University of Michigan, had been yeah. mostly dominant almost forever with a few bad stretches here and there that, um, that, that, that occur. So, um, yeah, Wisconsin at one point with Barry Alvarez was also a turnaround story, which is easy to forget. And he was the assistant coach at Iowa under Fry. And he probably learned a lot from that turnaround and brought that to Wisconsin. And, and their program is, I mean, I hate to talk about these other schools that irritate me, but the, the turnarounds at those programs uh, is very impressive. And what they've done in Wisconsin is amazing. So, and that goes to Barry Alvarez and his philosophy, but I'm sure he picked up some things being on Hayden Fry's staff. So now, I think there are, we'll jump to the business connections. I've got another kicking question I want to ask you, but- <laughs> There's, there's that turnaround and then there's sustaining the improvement, which connects to the work that, that we do, where um, Gary Barnett, after bringing the Northwestern program to the Rose Bowl, they had another uh, great season the year after. He stumbled a little bit for, for two seasons. Then he left and took the head coaching job back home in Colorado. That, I think, was a really important inflection point for Northwestern, where it could have been like, well, those two years were... Uh, a blip. And now we've gone back to what our state in the football pecking order had always been, yep. but they, they brought in another coach, Randy Walker, who had been successful at Miami of Ohio. He then brought them back up to a sustained, like going to a bowl game was now kind of an expectation, not the the rare event. And then when Pat Fitzgerald uh, became head coach, like they're, they're, I'm, I'm fortunate as an alum and as a fan that there really was the step function improvement in the level of, of performance at Northwestern. And there, there's risk in organizations we've seen in different types where, let's say in a hospital, they make great improvement. New CEO comes in, they go back to the old playbook and the Lean Six Sigma efforts or um, some of those results that are maybe more important can be temporary. I don't know if you've seen similar situations in the business world. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
it becomes a, there was a, in my past work, I worked at aerospace company for 18 years and they started lean probably about uh, two years before, one to two years before I started working there. And there was a, a big inflection point about year three or four where they said, I think we got this lean thing down. <laughs> Uh, we can kind of delegate this back out to the departments. We don't need a central organization to manage this. Um, and I think it was a really critical point. It didn't sustain. Um, CEO kind of realized that after about a, another couple of years and reinvigorated it again. And then I think it kind of maintained that level. So it did dip a little bit. I think they were premature to kind of claim success on their lean journey and think it was all embedded and ingrained in the culture yet. So it was a little early, but uh, luckily they made a correction and got it back on track. And, and maybe that's uh, an analogy back to like Michigan who is not doing as well as people are expecting to. And so uh, maybe they're going to make a correction to try and get back onto the path that they want to be on. But um, it's, I think those inflection points are really important to be able to decide either we're going to stick with this, what we're currently doing, or we need to change, or we are going to get left behind, or our competition is going to beat us, or our competitors are going to uh, continue to beat us. So, so I, I, while I've got you, like, you know, I do want to ask another football question when it comes to kicking and the idea of you know pressure situations, game-winning kicks. So, okay, not against Northwestern, but in in other <laughs> games, you know, did you ever have the opportunity? Uh, for for a game winning kick, make or miss, what what happened? What what did you learn from that? Yeah, so I had two attempts. Um, first one was in high school. Um, we were, I think, we were down by a point or two, and I was really excited. This is my like junior year, and we didn't attempt very many field goals. Um, I kept waiting and hoping for those attempts, but this one was set up nicely for. Uh, for a kick because we were down by one or two and time was running out and you almost had no choice, but to kick a field goal. So, um, and the kick got blocked and someone got through and cleanly blocked it. And there really wasn't a good shot at me getting the kickoff. So, uh, that was pretty disheartening because, you know, I, those things are really good for the, the resume and to get attention of schools. And, um, so I was really selfishly looking for an opportunity to make a game winning field goal. Um, so, you know, just trying to deal with it, you know, just, you know, I guess I was frustrated with that, how it turned out like that, but, um, I just kind of go back to say, is there anything I could have done differently? And I, I think everything I did was correct. And I thought I handled the pressure. Okay. I didn't feel super nervous. Um, so I think I got a, you know, still took a good positive away from it. Had I missed it and had been clean and, maybe I would have reacted differently or had to deal with it a lot differently than that. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying there, it's not like it wasn't a low kick. I mean, even though the kicker, you think of it as such an individual thing, there, there's a team effort there between the snap, the blocking, the hold. Yep. That, that was yeah, one that where you could three, say not, not your really, fault. Yeah. A, a field goal is really three key people. It's the snapper holder and the kicker itself. And any one of those can cause problems for the others. Right. And so, um, plus you have your eight other players blocking and trying to keep people out, which in that case didn't happen. Um, 
but yeah, the, um, so yeah, so yeah, it wasn't a low kick. Someone cleanly got through. And, um, so I think I took away a positive because I didn't see that I could have done anything better or different in that situation, but it was a good experience to go through that for the first time. Yeah. And then what was the other, what level Second was the one, other kick? I didn't have any, um, attempts in college that were considered game winning or game critical. There's a lot of misses that I had that I think were pivotal points in the game, but not like fourth quarter late in the game. Um, so I took different things off of those misses, but, um, later in, when I played arena football, um, it was the, uh, we, I got a road game to San Jose. So, um, we ended up going down and, uh, had a, a last minute field goal to win the game. And there's actually a little bit more time on the clock. And if you've ever been to arena football game, uh, that's plenty of yeah. time to score <laughs> a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, if there's so two there's, seconds on the clock, yeah, there's, yeah, that's plenty of time for a touchdown or uh, a couple of plays maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So I think there's maybe still 20 seconds left. And so the other team got the ball and had a chance to try a field goal and they end up missing the field goal at the end. So technically I had a game winning field goal, but also the other kicker missed theirs as well. Um, that could have been the game winning field goal. So. Uh, that was my only actual one that got off clean. And and so I think it's interesting. You're, you're talking about thinking back to the work that we do now. You think about process and you talk about results. There could be times where you as the kicker could have followed your process and done everything right and maybe not get a good result. Yep. Um, there could be maybe on the flip side where maybe there's something more fluky where like a kick is low and it would have been going left, but somebody tips it and now – and ends up going through the uprights. So maybe doesn't happen as often, but uh, yeah, I've had a, a, a tipped PAT extra point go through. Maybe it would have, I don't know if I would have missed it necessarily, but yeah, some fluky things happen or hits the crossbar at the wrong angle and it bounces backwards or bounces in. Um, there's some good videos. You can look at strange field goals that hit po- ghost um, goal posts and crossbars and stuff. And, that's never a good sound to hear as a kicker or the ball hitting the a crossbar. Usually it's not a good result. <laughs> well, here's a random question. So I remember one game when I was a student at Northwestern, um, any win was precious. And there was a, um, a chance for a game-winning field goal, probably time expiring against Michigan State. And um, the kicker, Brian Leahy, who was related to Pat Leahy, who kicked in the NFL uh, for quite a while, the kick went over the upright. It went over the goalpost. So it's just, it was so high. And then it becomes a judgment call of the referees looking up the game. I don't think it was even televised. There certainly wasn't going to be any instant replay. And Northwestern fans to this day say that the ref blew the call. Yeah. And so I guess it you know, kind of begs the question of like, why are the goalposts not taller to the point where that just wouldn't even be an issue? Yeah, I don't know. And in fact, that game winning kick I had was over the top of the arena uprights. And so it could have been a judgment call. They could have said that that was too close to where we think the line would have extended. Uh, And that happened a lot in arena and it happens a lot in regular football. The ball, if you look at the, the path, most I'd say over half the kicks are over the uprights. And so they need to go much higher up so that there's less, uh, ambiguity in the decisions about whether the ball actually went through the uprights or not. It, uh, 
it's a, it's, it's definitely a, a challenge and I wish they would, um, add on another 10 feet at least. Yeah. Up. Cause I mean, who cares about aesthetics? I mean, if you look at the foul poles at baseball games, I mean, those extend all the way up to the upper deck in a lot of cases, you could eliminate, uh, some of that possibility of a referee mistake. Exactly. Yep. Maybe I need to get a referee on the podcast at some point, <laughs> maybe a retired referee. I don't know if they would be willing to admit mistakes, but you know, I think of those pressure situations, uh, you know, a couple other athletes that I've interviewed, you, you face, like if I make a mistake at work, I don't have 80,000 people seeing it in person, yet alone how many on TV and I'm not getting ripped on social media. Yeah. So I was, I'm curious, you know, because like you, you played in, in the mid nineties, what are your thoughts now of like, you know, kind of, it's going to be a leading question, but the, the unfortunate situation where people are idiots on Twitter and are being abusive, if not threatening to a college kid who missed a kick. Yeah. I mean, it was, like I said, I didn't have a, a game where it was clearly my fault. We lost. Um, so I didn't have to deal with that in the stadium or people I run into. That was the way you got, um, uh, feedback on stuff like that that would yell out something right and i've been booed by my own fans before so that thickens the skin really quickly and we have great fans but at times i deserve to be booed right so um and so you deal with that and that makes you tougher and that gets you motivated to not make that have that happen again and that drives your practice and your desire to improve so um but on the same side i don't know how they can deal with that today. I mean, I, I think about what would happen, you know, if social media was around back then and anyone could um, say whatever they want to, to the players, you know, it was bad enough on the field and just knowing that it was going in the paper the next day and that um, you have to watch the film on Monday and rewatch it over and over again, the mistakes you made, uh, you dreaded that. And you just want to curl up and go to sleep and not see anybody. And hopefully that time passes by and they forget what happened. Um, so it was, it was the, the most amazing experience. And it's also was like the most stressful experience I've ever been through. So everything pretty much fails and pales in comparison to um, what I went through then um, business situations. I still get nervous about things, but I always think back to this is really not the same as, you know, being in front of 70,000 people and trying to, perform and they're all watching you. And if you screw up, they're all going to know it. Um, so the business situations are, are, are much easier to deal with. So I think that, did, that did help me a lot with dealing with pressure and learning how to uh, relax and control and not get too excited or too down. Um, so that was a, a great takeaway from, you know, playing sports, but, uh, yeah, that was tough. It was, um, I wouldn't change it, but I also, there are some things that were really difficult to go through. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing and reflecting on some of that. And, and, and again, like, I mean, uh, the, the kicker is one part of the puzzle. <laughs> you know, I blogged years ago. Um, I had a chance to go to a Fiesta Bowl game in Arizona. It was Stanford against Oklahoma State. And the Stanford kicker missed a 35-yard kick at the end of regulation. And then he missed a 43 yarder in overtime and they lost. And there was, you know, uh, you know, a lot of just, you know, um, over the top criticism of the kicker. And then you read about what happened. The snap was a little bit 
offline. The holder did his best to gather it in. And then I don't know if this is a thing, like for those of us who just know from the movie Ace Ventura, when they say laces out, the laces were in. And like, yeah. so there are all these different factors that could have thrown off the kicker's timing. The ball wasn't held properly, but yet the kicker gets blamed. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's the, you know, that's goes with the role, right? The job is the least physically demanding in terms of like, you're not getting, you're not tackling people or being tackled which everyone else has to deal with. So the perk is um, you don't have to go through all of that, but the other side of it is you take on all the glory if you do well and you take the blame. If you, if you mess up, they're not going to see the, the holder didn't do their job or the snapper or some lineman let someone in and get their hand on it. That's it's sometimes hard to tell what went wrong exactly. So that kind of comes with the territory, but yeah. Um, you know, it's, I've had, I have friends that played in the NFL many years and um, three of them had very high profile misses in playoff games and they received death threats multiple times from fans, you know? And so it's, it's sad that that's where people uh, take out their frustrations and do stuff like that. And they are so wrapped up maybe in the sports that they would threaten people's lives over a game. So that that's disheartening that, you know, people are like that. And that was even kind of pre social media or just kind of mid two thousands and stuff. And they all went through very difficult times just trying to recover from that because, you know, their team didn't go to the Super Bowl or didn't go to the next round of the playoffs. And, and um, that also ended up getting in there, you know, probably hurting their chances of sticking around for another year. Um, and, and to see what they went through, it was like, I don't know if it was worth it. That's, you know, the money's good, but man, that's a lot to deal with. And um, it's almost like some post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I don't want to try to equate it to stuff like that, but there is a lot of mental strain that gets put on, on people like that. And then to have it added on top where people are threatening your family and stuff, that's just uncalled for. Totally. And, and you know, a uh, fan is short for fanatic, but oh my gosh, don't, don't True. take it that far. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, you talk about um, the, the lack of physical action. You you were relatively big for a kicker. Uh, yeah. So you, you were um, listed at 6'4. That's right? right. Yeah, I was 6'4 and like 215 um, when I ended up playing. So that's pretty tall for a kicker. Um, we had some others in the league. Uh, John Hall was a kicker at Wisconsin, he was 6'4. He was maybe 240, 250 or something. Our punter was 6'4, 260. Um, we had a strange um, batch of people that came through who were larger than normal. But I think you're seeing um, the athleticism of the kicker position greatly improving over the last couple of decades, where it's not just who's the soccer player that we can have them come out and they'll figure out how to play the football rules later just kick it through the uprights. It's now become um, uh, very competitive and some of the best athletes on the team are the kickers in some, on some teams. Uh, and some of them are world-class athletes that have just figured out that they're very good at this skill. Um, so it's pretty kind of been crazy to see the evolution of the kicking profession itself. When you can make millions of dollars a year, people are going to say, Hey, it's worth it. And uh, I don't get banged up and my knees aren't shot at uh, when I'm, 45 or 50. Um, I got a lot of my teammates that would tell me, 
when my kids get old enough, I'm going to call you and you're going to teach them how to kick because they're not going to be alignment. <laughs> is is it is there a parallel um, to golf when you think of like practicing this kicking motion and a golf swing where I'm not a golfer, but there might be disadvantages for taller golfers because it's harder to maintain the consistency with longer yep. limbs? Yep. It's, it's the trade-off of consistency and distance. And so I was taller and I think that did help me kick the ball further. But it also was part of the reason I was inconsistent with my uh, my technique because um, it's uh, I guess there's more to kind of coordinate to get that repetitive motion down. Um, so, yeah, I think you see that with the golfers. They can drive it really far, but they struggle maybe on the short game. Um, but the, the analogy of golfing is identical almost, except for the, the ball is not stationary, except for like a kickoff. Um, and a field goal, there's a mo- motion and people are rushing you. So if they could simulate that in the golf course, then it would be identical to a uh, field goal kick. Uh, but yeah, the mechanics are very similar. It's the practice often done by yourself, focusing on it. You know, if I was to change the way I practiced, I would have kicked fewer balls each time. I would have stopped after every kick and evaluated any mistakes or errors I made and maybe looked at, was my placement off? Did I step it off incorrectly? Did I go too fast or too slow? Did my plant foot land in the correct spot each time? Um, Instead, I would often just, I was mad that I missed it and I line up and kick another one right away. And I never stopped and studied what went wrong. And I I think that kind of ties back to our business discussion too, is we just want to move on to the next thing. And we don't want to go back and revisit what, why things failed or didn't work out right. And I think I would have been much more, my improvement would have been faster and better had I studied those mistakes and learned from them instead of just trying to get it out of my head and move on to the next kick. Yeah. There's, it comes back to the process, not just the result and maybe looking for the root cause, if you will, of like you said, why did I miss that kick? Yep. And adjust the process. There's lots of variables from how quickly you step back to your alignment. When you step back at the angle to how many steps you take over the pace at which you move towards the ball, your foot placement, and then even the ball and how it's angled and positioned by the holder. Um, there's a lot of little variables in there that doesn't take more. I've I've moved like half inches on some of those things and it's made a difference in my kickings. It doesn't take much to get off a little bit. It's just one other football memory that comes back here. Northwestern's kicker at the time. I don't know if you ever met him, Sam Valenzisi. He was a pretty good kicker, but he was maybe, he was maybe five, eight, but, um, he was known for, he made a lot of tackles. So he wasn't a real big guy, but he was maybe a little bit nuts and he would run down and not be last line of defense tackle, but like he was really racing downfield with a head of steam. He wanted to make tackles. And then sadly he wasn't able to play in the Rose bowl game. He missed the last couple games of that season and the Rose bowl. Cause I think of what happened was um, toward the end of a game against Wisconsin um, there was a kickoff and I think it was, you know, it was a touchback. And I think there was just this excited mood of, of, of the team and the winning and that game. And he jumped up in the air to celebrate the touchback, not points. You know, for people who don't know football, they didn't score any points. It just means he kicked it out of the back of the end zone and the team couldn't return it. He jumped up to celebrate and landed 
landed wrong and really screwed up his knee. Yep. Kind of the mistake yeah. of celebrating something. So maybe to your point, Brian, of not getting too low, not getting too high could have helped him out there. I think it was Martin, Martin Gramatica did that too. In the NFL. Um, on a, a celebration, right? And so, and partly is you have different size shoes. You have a regular shoe and then you have a kicking shoe. And it's not meant for like running and sprinting and doing a lot of stuff other than kicking. So, um, so you, now you're uneven a little bit and then you're doing something you're not normally practicing doing celebrating. And so, <laughs> um, but I've seen that happen a lot that people have injured themselves and it's, um, probably a little embarrassing for them to have that happen. But unfortunately that, you know, you have a great season, you do everything right. And then something like that ruins your, your end of your yeah. season. And, and again, it's one of those high visibility mistakes. I make a, a huge mistake here. I would edit it out. I mean, I don't always edit out my mistakes. But. Yeah, it's a, it's a highlight tape version of, of everything, right? So the, I don't have all the mistakes and misses there. <laughs> yeah. So maybe one other thing to drop back to something you said earlier, and then we'll, uh, before wrapping up, you know, you talked earlier about, I'm paraphrasing, you kind of develop some bad habits without having a knowledgeable coach, there's risk of that happening in the type of work that you or I do today. So I was wondering if you could talk about the role of, you know, what, what's called again, you know, a master black belt in Lean Six Sigma. Is there risk that people who are earlier in their learning and development, if they're having to figure it out on their own, might also develop some bad habits without, without a coach? Yeah, I think that applies for lots of things that, you know, you don't realize, you, maybe you don't realize you need the coach or the benefits that the coach can provide, or it seems expensive to hire a coach. Um, and you think that you'll get through it or figure it out or, um, and you don't realize what the struggle will be without it. And so until you go through it and then you look back and say, that would have been nice for me to have someone there that could have guided me or corrected it and saved me a lot of struggle and frustration and um, mental anguish, I guess, to, to go through it. So I think it's, it's difficult for people to recognize the need for the coach, but I think what, what really, you know, stands out is when you look at people who are at the top of their games, who still have coaches, uh, you're Michael Jordan's and LeBron James and Tiger Woods and, and Serena Williams, they all have coaches still, and yet they're the best in their sport at the time or, and so why wouldn't any of us also require coaches to help us do our job better? And I think that's, um, I don't know if it looks like it's a weakness or something, or that you can say that you did it all by yourself or there's some pride thing, but yeah, I think there's really, you know, I personally probably need more coaches and I'm not using enough coaches. So, um, I think we can all look to, let's talk, find somebody who's already done that, gone down the path and can guide us in a way that allows us to learn, but also not forces us because I have had kicking coaches and camps I've gone to where they said, you will do it this exact way. And it didn't fit my body style or type. And I struggled with it and it messed up my performance. And I think that's not a good use of a coach where they tell you do it exactly like this, but instead say, here are the principles, here are the important elements and key points. and Make sure that you hit those key points. How you get there can be left up to your own flexibility or preference or technique, but 
You have to have a common method of stepping off your steps. You have to have a consistent speed to the ball and you have to place your foot in this other thing. Everything else, you could take like Paul Edinger of the Bears with a very unorthodox style. Um, but if you do those key elements correctly, you'll be successful. And he was very successful. Um, so I think, you know, focusing on what is a really important thing that the coach can do, not do it exactly or do it exactly like me or do it exactly this way. I think that will not be successful. And there are people in our professional realm who try coming about it that way. Also, I'm the expert. I'm the, they might even use a word like sensei and they'll say, yeah, don't question me. Just do it this way. And like that in different ways can hamper somebody's development or it might not be a fit. This exact template in this exact form and it has to look like this. And it's, you're taking away, I think the learning part of it or so they can develop and move past that coach. And I, I did a little bit of uh, kicking and punting um, coaching later. I wasn't great at it. I don't think I was uh, built for that. Uh, but the people I worked with, I tried to be very flexible and really just kind of hone in on, um, I'm not going to correct everything you do wrong. I'm just look for patterns in the, the thing I see repetitively done. I know you misstepped somewhere on there. I'm not, I don't have to point that out to you. You can see that. But where I see that you're not doing something repetitively, I'm going to maybe highlight those things. And so, um, but I tried to not say you need to study my tape and try to replicate what I did. Exactly. That would have been a disaster for them. Well, thank you, Brian, for sharing, you know, perspectives from, you know, this world that, that I don't, don't know any, don't know anything about, um, of, you know, place kicking. And um, I'm sure it's, you know, interesting perspective to hear some of your recollections there. And thank you also for connecting it to, things that we face in um, other workplaces. So as we wrap up, um, again, our guest has been Brian Hurley. Um, His podcasts are uh, one, Lean Six Sigma Bursts. Uh, The second one is Lean Six Sigma for Good. There's a book of that same title. Uh, In a nutshell, what what makes it Lean Six Sigma for Good? What kind of things do you cover on that podcast? Yeah, so um, I started off focusing on environmental uh, issues and applications of Lean and Six Sigma to work on things like energy reduction and water reduction and solid waste. And then as I was doing a little bit more work in Portland with volunteering with nonprofits, I kind of lumped all of that type of activity into a, a broader Lean Six Sigma for Good umbrella, where it's just, you know, it, it's not so much focused on the businesses um, making more revenue or uh, having better quarterly returns. But it's about, are we really solving social issues and important issues that affect everybody that are the the meaningful problems that we need to resolve? Um, And so anything that's kind of like nonprofit-based, government agency-focused, and then other applications where the company's trying to reduce reduce their carbon footprint or how much pollution they're generating, um, those types of things that are... um, you know, I think are, are really important problems that we need this type of thinking and skills to help resolve some of those issues. So, um, so I'm just trying, yeah, finding people who have done some work in government or nonprofit work and trying to share some of their stories and, and hopefully motivate other uh, of those organizations to learn a little bit more about these process improvement methods. 
Well, good. Well, thank you. And I hope people will check that out. Um, Lean Six Sigma for good. And when it comes to coaching or at least kind of like pure coaching, Brian and I are both involved in a group that we call Lean Communicators, where we we get together and we try to help and coach each other out in uh, kind of a, you know informal, uh, collaborative way. You can learn more about all of our podcasts at leancommunicators.com. Um, so Brian, thank you for being a guest and I'm really glad we could do this today. Yeah, thanks for having me and inviting me. Well, again, thanks to Brian Hurley for being our guest today. And for show notes, links, and more, again, you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake99. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.